Hello, my name is Brian Powell, and I'm the host of Bristol Myers Squibb's Black Organization for Leadership Development podcast series, Bold Innovators. This is an open conversation with bold community members and allies throughout BMS who are true leaders in and out of the office who stands with our mission to foster an inclusive environment that values the contributions of Black employees equally with others. This season, we'll be focusing on a new Bristol-Myers Squibb core value. Last season, our focus was on innovation. This season, we'll be focusing on passion and how that has driven our guests throughout their careers. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Wendy Shortbarty, Chief of Staff to the CEO. A compassionate and strategic leader, her career journey has taken many turns, but her path has always been clear the commitment to help people, first as a lawyer and then as a pharmaceutical industry professional. Prior to her current role, Wendy was Senior Vice President of U.S. Oncology for BMS. Before joining BMS, Wendy was Vice President and Head of Commercial Operations for U.S. Oncology at Merck. In this capacity, Wendy was responsible for leading the sales, key accounts, market access, pricing and policy organizations within the U.S. Business Unit. Previously, Wendy served as an Associate Vice President of Global Marketing for GU Cancers and as the Global Disease Lead for Women's Cancer. Prior to career in pharma, Wendy was a public defender in Washington, D.C. and the Bronx, New York. Wendy received her Bachelor of Arts from Clark Atlanta University and her Juris Doctorate from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Wendy is also an HBA rising star and was recognized by the HBA as a luminary in 2020. Wendy, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, it's always a pleasure to have you around, Wendy, and you're such an inspirational figure throughout the organization. I'm just glad that I got the chance to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our time together. Oh, me too. And before we go into your story and the bullet 10 questions, I know you recently took on the chief of staff role. How's everything been going for you so far? Thanks for asking. It's been great. You know, I always say that the first six months of any job is for you to spend time understanding the organization, understanding the role and understanding where you can have the greatest impact. And so I've been fortunate to have the time to really understand where I, as chief of staff, can have the greatest impact across the organization. And quite frankly, getting to do this role under Giovanni and learning from him every day has been, it's really been, I would argue, career changing because I've learned so much. And so now that I transition out of my first six months into my next six months, it's really about making impact in the organization at the enterprise level. For some of our audience that might not know what a chief of staff is, can you briefly describe what is a chief of staff? Sure. So the chief of staff role looks a little bit different at different companies, and it's really based on kind of the needs of the organization at the given time that someone enters the role. But what I basically do is work very closely with the CEO of the organization here, it's Giovanni at BMS, to think about leadership team effectiveness, to make sure that we are building out our agendas and focus for the organization um, through the course of the year. The role requires that I step in to work enterprise level projects 
And in this particular role, one of the projects that I'm working on, and everybody at BMS is familiar with it, it's all of our work around simplification. Mm. And that really is part of an overall workforce um, effectiveness effort to make sure that we're simplifying processes and removing barriers out of the system so that people can really focus their time and attention on those things that are most important to us, leaning into our strategic ambition and ultimately delivering for patients. Well, that sounds great, Wendy. I look forward to learning more about those simplification efforts later in the podcast. But before we get into your story and your work at BMS, we would like to learn a little bit more about you in a fun and interesting way. And how we do it with the podcast is asking the bold 10 questions. Again, they're fun, they're interactive, and get to know you a little bit more than just your general story. Let's go. Question number one. What was ruined because it became popular? Oh my goodness, TikTok. Um, so I have a teenager and she started um, watching TikTok videos and she's a dancer and she would dance on TikTok. And I thought it was a cool platform and pretty cool. Um, and now it's just everywhere, it's ubiquitous. And so it's not cool anymore. <laughs> Had a short band of popularity. <laughs> Question number two, where do you get your news? Great question. Every day when I drive into work, I turn on NPR. In fact, I go to Spotify and there's a program called The Daily Drive. And so it starts with an update on all of the key uh, news, not only domestic, but international news. I listen to that. Then I listen to a few of my favorite songs and I transition into The New York Times. Question number three, what invention doesn't get a lot of love, but has greatly improved the world? What invention doesn't get a lot of love, but has greatly improved the world? I think that the best invention of recent years has really been the electric car. And now the proliferation of electric, electric charging stations across the country. Um, we really do have to uh, reduce our reliance on gas. And so I think electric cars are critical. One, it's better for, I would argue, the economy. And two, it's just so much better for the environment. Question number four, what's the warmest you've ever been? The warmest I've ever been? Oh, my <laughs> goodness. That, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I'd have to say that the warmest I've ever been has to be tied to uh, being, at the pla being in a place where the temperature has been the highest I've ever experienced. And that had to be years ago. Um, when my family took a trip to Las Vegas in the middle of the summer, Ooh. and it just so happened that the temperatures were north of 100 degrees the entire week that we were there. And so, yes, we were on fire the entire week <laughs> um, and constantly trying to find air conditioned locations and water to stay cool. <laughs> I guess you weren't outside very often during that time. No, we were doing everything we could to stay off of the strip, but you know, you'd want to sit out by the pool and enjoy the sun, which is kind of part of the, the benefit of being in Vegas. But once you're outside for just a few minutes, it was so incredibly uncomfortable, you had to go back in. Question number five, if cartoon physics suddenly replaced real physics, what are some things you will want to try out? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. I don't know. Does bungee jumping does bungee jumping count? And is that not cool enough for the podcast? Uh, that's cool enough for me. When I see Bugs Bunny bungee jumping some of those old cartoons, I I don't want to do that. I'm scared of it, but go at it for you. <laughs> <laughs> question number six. What app can you not believe someone hasn't made yet? 
goodness, I, we need an app that creates more hours in a day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and since that is impossible, you know what? This is going to seem pretty basic, but I would love an app that captures and ensures every time I spend money at a store or with the business, or if I'm at a restaurant, I get an electronic receipt that is captured um, for, for eternity. And they're all stored in that one app so that I never have to worry about losing a receipt or not being able to return something because I've, I've lost or misplaced or thrown away a receipt. That's pretty basic, but that would be cool. And I'm surprised nobody has, nobody has made that yet. I think you might have come up with a billion-dollar app idea. You might want to move to Silicon Valley, Wendy, for your side <laughs> hustle. <laughs> Question number seven, what two things are terrible when separate but great when you put them together? Oh, my goodness. Um, ketchup and anything that needs ketchup? I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, I, you know what? I, I'd have to say two things that are terrible when separate but great when together are eyes. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a really great answer. I never thought about that. Huh. Great. It might have been the most insightful answer I ever met, had on the podcast, so congrats on Wendy on that one. Thank you. <laughs> Question number eight. What job doesn't exist now but will exist in the future? Oh, wow. I think that's a I think that's a great question. So in order to answer that question, and I don't think it's an easy one. I think it's pretty tough. Um, I want to answer that question thinking about some things we see today that may provide insight into what we'll need tomorrow. So here's what I see working in healthcare. In America, the baby boomer generation makes up, I believe, a little over 20% of the U.S. population. And this group is aging. I think we also see technology and, and automation um, taking over some roles that have historically required people. I think and we live this every day, technology and innovation, they're both teaching us more and more about our health in a way that will allow us, I would argue, very soon to have very personalized care. Um, and I think the other thing we're seeing right now, and I, and I know we all feel this, is that because of technology, we are so connected that sometimes it feels like we're never off. Mm. And as a result of that, I think people are really tired and, and people feel overwhelmed. And so when I put together kind of all of those things that I see, I think one role that we're gonna need in the future is, I would argue, a chief productivity officer. Mm. When we hear companies that are talking about continuous improvement, and, and Brian, we talked a little bit about simplification earlier at the start of the podcast, mm -hmm. and, and we see companies have a genuine desire to manage burnout and we see people leaving the workforce because they're exhausted. I think creating a, a role, a very senior role in organizations where the goal is really to drive efficiencies, to really cause people to ruthlessly prioritize on what's most important and to, to, to uh, if not remove, but eliminate churn in the system that really takes up a lot of our time and energy is something that we're gonna need to continue to be a productive society that isn't completely exhausted and burned out. And then I think one other um, role that I think we'll need to, well, if, if you if you let me, I think another role that we're desperately gonna see, and there isn't, there's a, a form of this that exists now, but again, when we talk about an aging population um, and a population that as a consumer group, we're used to getting what we need when we, when we need it and the way we want it. I think in the healthcare sector, we're going to need 
um, more roles that what we commonly call now is like nurse navigators. I would actually refer to them as more of like a medical mentor, someone whose job is literally to follow patients after their appointments with their doctors. And it's someone whose role is to make sure that patients are following through on the recommendations from doctors, whether those those engagements are tied to, let me make sure that you're taking your medicine, you understand what medicine has been prescribed to. I want to make sure that you're making healthy choices around what you eat. I want to make sure that you're incorporating mm. exercise into your lifestyle every day. I think there's a, a huge need for a medical mentor type role because our physicians are exhausted. They're burnt out. They're seeing more and more patients than they ever have before. And because you've got an aging population, the demands on the healthcare system won't, won't, less, won't get lighter. They won't ease up. So you need to create a role in the system to help people manage a more healthy life. And I guess the last one, I, I think we see it, we're living it now that our working environments are shifting and more and more companies have hybrid solutions. We certainly have a hybrid work week here at BMS. Mm -hmm. I think some companies have moved to full on remote. And so I think that one of the, the challenges with flexible work arrangements is a loss of connectivity. And what I mean is really connectivity to the culture and to people. And so mm -hmm. I think HR organizations will need to think about a role that literally is designed to drive connectivity, connections between people in an organization and to the culture of an organization as we become more distantly located. Well, fantastic answers, Wendy. And I love how you combine the fact that we need to be more productive, but understand the fact that the well-being of our employees are very imperative to get to that point and having a role that mirrors the both is makes an ideal sense for a future. I think we have to. We all want to do our best and we all want to work and deliver. And I think in our industry in particular, our, our North Star is clear. And at BMS, what I love about this company is everybody um, centers around the mission for patients, but we need to make sure that we're healthy and, and that we are well cared for and that we're making the right decisions for ourselves to make sure that we can deliver for patients so we show up well for the company. Exactly. And our last question, what awful movie do you love? Goes <laughs> <laughs> a good one to go out with. <laughs> okay, I'm so ashamed to admit this, but it probably has to be Dirty Grandpa. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen it, but it sounds- I, I have. Yeah. It's, I know, look, it's lewd and it's rude, but I happen to love, love Robert De Niro. Um, and so I pretty much like anything he does. And while I know most people like him in some of his more serious roles, like The Godfather or, you know, Heat, I actually love him when he does uh, humorous roles like Dirty Grandpa and Meet the Fonker. So, yes, that's probably the awful movie that I love. <laughs> it's still not a bad movie in the day. Mine is Snakes on a Plane. It's the stupid premise, but it gets the job done being that it's a movie about snakes on a plane. That is awful, but I appreciate your <laughs> point of view. So yeah, putting myself out there as well. <laughs> Wendy, no, thanks again for answering the bold 10 questions. I think we know a little bit more about you. And uh, again, we'll make sure to watch Dirty Grandpa's one day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody I suggested it though. Yeah. Less of me. <laughs> lip sealed, lip sealed. <laughs> So since we went through the bold questions, we know a little bit more about you. It'd be a great opportunity for you to tell the audience story, Wendy. Um, so I've been in this industry for 20 years, and I think I have to start my story with um, 
kind of where my professional career began. While I've been in the pharma industry for 20 years, I actually started out as a public defender, first in Washington, D.C., and then in, in the Bronx in New York. And after doing that for a few years, I decided that I wanted to do something different. And I wanted a career that would allow me to, to do both, be a mom and have children and raise my family, but also to have a rewarding and fulfilling career that allowed me to be a career woman. And I knew how to do two things. I knew how to be a lawyer and I knew how to be a bartender. And that was it. <laughs> but I did have a number of friends that were in the pharmaceutical industry. And what I loved about the industry was, and this was in the early 2000s, where we saw explosive growth across the industry because many companies at that time had very large primary care um, assets that they were um, expanding and expanding in order to support. And so I entered into the industry thinking, I'll try it. And if I like it, okay. If I don't, I'll go back to practicing law. And I actually fell in love with the industry for all the reasons that people who are in this industry love it. It's the ability every day to take a decision that has the ability to impact a health outcome for someone and to be able to do work every day that allows someone to be alive, to spend time with the people that they love. Um, again, I've been in the pharma industry for 20 years. The majority of that time now has been in the oncology space, which I love because it's the whole idea of do good and do well at the same time. This industry allows us to do well and to provide for our families, but it allows us to do good for society in general. And knowing that every day I get to take a decision that ultimately can have the impact of allowing a man or a woman to spend more time and better time with people that he or she loves is incredibly, incredibly rewarding to me. Well, thanks, Wendy. I really appreciate that. And uh, get being at Bristol Myers Squibb, being part of a company that is really patient focused, doing all our work and the blood, sweat and tears for the patients is something I've seen and obviously you've seen with your time here as well. But one follow-up question on that, was there a particular moment earlier in your career that you really wanted to transition from being a lawyer? It was, it was really a recognition that my husband and I, it was really practical. I wish I could tell you there was some like significant uh, philosophical uh, shift or that I literally woke up and saw a light overhead that kind of told me that I needed to change paths. It wasn't that. It was something far far more practical. Early in my career, I, I have a husband who um, is, a, is a lawyer. He's a partner in a law firm, um, very ambitious, very driven by career. We were living in New York City. Um, we were both practicing law and literally we were ships passing in the night because we were so busy. Mm. And I wanted to be a mom. And I realized that living in New York City, with a husband who was very busy and ambitious and not having a support system around me because we had no family, um, that that would be difficult to be able to do everything I wanted to do. And so that is ultimately what made me start thinking about, should I, should I think about a different career path that will allow me to, to be every woman, to be a wife and a mother and a career woman? Mm -hmm. And so that was ultimately what drove the shift. But here's what, here's what life experience teaches you. The reality is I've never worked less hard in the pharma industry than I did when I was practicing law. In fact, there have been mm -hmm. years where I've worked far harder because it's not about the job. It's about who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And it's about what drives you and what you're passionate about. And I think when you're a, a driver person, when you're somebody who wants to make a difference and you're able to do it in an area or through work that you're passionate about, you work hard no matter mm. what. 
you you give your all to it no matter what. And so that was the learning. I switched careers, but I didn't work any less. I just channeled my energies in a different way and ultimately found that that same satisfaction, a sense of fulfillment that I got in representing disenfranchised, vulnerable, poor people in the criminal justice system, I was able to tap into that passion and feel just as passionate, if not more, about working in an industry that really, really is committed to improving the quality of life for people and also recognizing that in this industry, I can still focus on disenfranchised communities, underrepresented communities. I can focus on initiatives and projects that allow me to drive a health equity platform that's critically important because I believe that we shouldn't be in the business of helping some patients. We should be in the business of helping all patients. And it's critically important that everybody get access to innovation. It's great that you mentioned your passion. I can even feel your passion coming through the microphone and Obviously, our season is based upon our passions and how it's driven us in our careers. So uh, what are you boldly passionate about, Wendy? Oh, goodness. Well, I just mentioned I'm boldly passionate about <laughs> helping disenfranchised or vulnerable, underrepresented people. That was reflected in the work I did as a public defender, and it's very relevant in my current work. I'm passionate about making sure all people get access to innovation and we're leading innovation, and I want as many people who can benefit from our innovation to get access to it. I'm also passionate, boldly passionate about <laughs> kindness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're, mm, you may think that's something that may seem odd um, to be passionate about, but but quite frankly, Brian, I think it's essential. Like if if you just boil it down, you know, kind kindness is is really nothing more than about acts that we can commit. Um, that are that are based on generosity or in consideration of someone else, you know, helping somebody um, or expressing concern for someone else without, quite frankly, expecting anything in return. It, it's it's not about being nice. Nice is how you act. Kind is about who you are. And and I believe wholeheartedly, if we all spent some time, not a ton of time, but a moment every day practicing at least one act of kindness, I think it would make the world much better. And I know that sounds Pollyanna, I know, but I think it's necessary. Now more than ever, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I still feel that we're all reeling from COVID, we're mm -hmm. all feeling the pressures of inflation, and there's just a general kind of tenseness and anxiety that feels a little omnipresent now. And I think the best way to help with that is to be kind to one another, to show each other grace, and to give each other the benefit of the doubt. When I said mm, about kindness, you're hitting the exact thought process I've had for the last few years. Kindness is probably one of the most important, if not the most important thing to have as a person in general to be successful or just have great relationships, but almost even more imperative in the corporate world. So when you talked about kindness, you were hitting every single thing that I hold dear in my career as well as my personal life as well. And just doubling down on that. Is there an example that you've gone through in your life that kindness really showed and how it was able to really get spread grassroots wise? You know, Brian, I think that anything you do, like, you know, I've done things like, and most of us have done this kind of stuff. You buy somebody a cup of coffee in the coffee shop. Not that they can't afford their cup of coffee, but there's something about watching a person's face light up when they realize that you thought enough of them 
to buy their coffee. Um, mm. a, a, last year, I was in a nail salon, and um, I was sitting next to a woman, and she happened to be explaining to the, the woman who was doing her nails that it was her birthday. And she was there treating herself to a manicure and a pedicure for her birthday. And so when I got up to leave, I actually paid for her manicure and pedicure. I didn't oh, tell wow. her. I paid and I walked out. And about 15 minutes later, I got this wonderful text message from her because they gave her my number at the nail salon. And she mm. thanked me so much. And she basically said that this was a birthday she was spending alone because she had broken up with her significant other. Mm. And that, you know, me getting paid for her manicure and pedicure made her feel good. I had no idea that she was going through something in her life. I just heard somebody say it was a birthday and I wanted to do something nice. But the ability to be able to provide some sunshine in her life when she was going through something um, tough, I thought, was was that meant a lot to me. And it made me happy to be able to do that for her. And, and in, the, in the workplace, I have to say, one of the best examples of kindness that I, I got the pleasure of experiencing was many years ago in my career, um, I was at Novartis in the oncology business, and Christy Shaw was the head of North America at the time. And I had to go into a meeting with her leadership team to talk about a topic that um, was slightly controversial, and I didn't know that I would have support of the LT when I went into the meeting. And I walked into a room, and it was jam-packed, and there was no seat at the table. So I very politely kind of went to the back of the room and sat in a chair that was off to the side. And Christy literally looked up and stopped speaking and stopped the conversation. And she said, hi, Wendy, welcome. Please scoot up to the table. And then she looked across and said, hey, guys, make room for her. Mm. And it was in that moment that basically she said to me, you have the right to be in the room. You have the right to have your opinions heard. You have the right to be at this table. And that act of kindness gave me confidence mm. professionally. And it's something that I will never, ever forget. And I'm thoughtful about doing that when I'm in rooms now, when people come into the room, invite them to the table and make sure that they're heard. That's great to hear. And I went ahead like how you went to this next point I was trying to make. How do you believe that we at BMS or BMS in general can embolden kindness into our day-to-day -day lives so it does spread here throughout the organization? To say, I generally see colleagues here that are very kind people. But I think I'm a firm believer that if there's something you want, you claim it. So if we want to see kindness permeate across the organization, claim that it's something we care about. And then after you claim it, you do it. I think kindness is actually contagious. And when mm -hmm. people see it happening around them, and they're the beneficiary of it, then they want to give it back to someone else. And so I think creating an environment where people can actually observe random acts of kindness and to be able to create an environment where doing something kind is rewarded and appreciated. I know I said kindness is about doing something without an expectation of reward or return, but I think when you can call out great behavior, it makes other people want to engage in great behavior. I can't agree. And it spreads after that. People know that you put good into the world, good will come back to you. Not that you're expecting it, that it just naturally happens. It makes more a much happier and a more well fine oiled community, in my opinion. I agree, Brandon. I think um, Oprah Winfrey probably said it best. I don't know if this was an original quote from her or if she was quoting someone else. But I've often seen a quote where Oprah Winfrey says, people never remember what you say but they always remember how you make them feel. Mm. And to me, that goes to the kindness principle. Completely agree with you on that. 
And shift gears a little bit, but what you were saying earlier, you're also passionate about helping disenfranchised and marginalized communities. Is there an example you can think of in your work at Bristol-Myers Squibb, especially within your role now that you're able to champion uh, helping out those communities? So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing around health equity. Um, BMS was um, BMS made pretty bold um, externally facing commitments in 2020 about the work that we were doing around health equity, and that included everything from ensuring that we were investing in diverse suppliers to making sure that we were um, increasing diversity in our clinical trials making sure that we were partnering with clinical trialists and actually creating opportunities for diverse um, people, both gender and gender, ethnicity and race, to um, actually learn how to be clinical trialists. We've made innumerable commitments in terms of grants and giving around health equity, and we continue to advance the health equity work. Um, so if there was anything I would say that I am particularly excited about, passionate about and proud of, here at BMS, it's not just the innovation that we create every day, but it's the work around health equity, because that's the work that will make sure that that innovation is equally distributed and that everybody can benefit from it. There's so much work to be done around health equity. And I think that, it, you know, it's such a difficult topic to take on, because if, if you really think about um, health equity, at least in the U.S., part of it rests in understanding social determinants of health. And a lot of those factors are actually things that need to be impacted long before somebody actually gets sick. A lot of those factors have to do with education, access to good food, making right decisions, people not having to live in, in food deserts, you know, where there are no grocery stores with healthy food. Some of that stuff is huge and structural and will take many years to overcome. But at least here, within our four walls at our company, we do have the ability to make sure that we're making good decisions that are inclusive of all communities. And, and that's what we're committed to doing. Is there any challenge or what is the top challenge that we have in trying to improve those health equities from your perspective? You know, I, I think there's, there's so many challenges, but one of the things that whenever I hear it, I, I have to say, I do, um, I do find that I cringe a little bit um, I've often heard people say that the reason why, and I'll, I'll use clinical trials as an example, the reason why we don't see better representation from the African-American or Black community in clinical trials is because of a distrust of the medical system that dates back to the Tuskegee Institute. Mm -hmm. And whenever I hear that, the hair, the hair stands up on my arms for a couple of reasons. One, while I do believe, and, and it's not even a belief, we know that the, the Tuskegee exper experiments were horrible. We know that you can look at Henrietta Lacks and you know what's happened with her cells and the proliferation of those cells and what it's done to advance scientific innovation, yet you know, her family never saw the benefit of, of her contribution to, to medicine. We can look at the gynecological uh, surgical experiments that were done on black women without anesthesia and completely understand why there may be a mistrust um, of the medical establishment. However, I believe it's far more basic than that. I think the reason why we don't see better representation of Black African-American people or Latino people for that matter in clinical trials is because sometimes they're simply not asked if they want to participate. Mm. And, and, and I don't think that the failure to ask is anything diabolical or malevolent or there's bad intention. I think sometimes it's just a belief 
that some people have that, well, they won't want to participate because of, you know, the Tuskegee experiments or because they have a distrust of the medical establishment. But you won't know unless you ask. And we have to make sure that every physician who is involved in a clinical trial is asking their patients of color, their patients of different ethnicities, if they want to participate. I've heard those stories multiple times growing up in generations from my family not want to participate in things because of the ski experiments and things of that nature. So I'm completely aligned. And I guess maybe one last question on that topic, Wendy. What's one thing you can say to patients that are hesitant about being a part of clinical trials or trusting pharmaceutical or medical industry? What's one thing you can say to kind of steer their thought process? One, I think you do have to acknowledge the history. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge the history so that people feel heard. But then I think it's really important to remind patients of the advancements that we have seen in science based on clinical trials. And I think it's important to remind people that um, we can use lung cancer as an example prior to COVID, and I don't know what the the numbers are going to look like now, but we saw two years um, of consecutive decline in lung cancer deaths. That is not because people fundamentally live different. I believe it's because of the innovative medicines that were brought to market that ultimately fundamentally shifted the outcomes for people with metastatic lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And in order to continue to bring that type of innovation to market, we have to do studies. And the studies allow us to be able to see how the products work and the folks that participate in the studies with the goal of being able to get to a larger audience. And so when people are participating in clinical trials, it doesn't only have the benefit of helping them, but it also has the benefit, a bigger benefit of hopefully advancing science in a way that can impact hundreds and thousands of people around the globe. And so I would encourage people to ask questions, to do their research, to talk to their doctors, to talk to their families, to get a second opinion, but don't say no until you've had a chance to think critically about the benefit that a clinical trial can have. Thank you for that response, Wendy. And if one person hears what you said and rethinks or reevaluates their decisions, I think we'll be all for the better. So thank you for that response, Wendy. No, you know, thank you for asking the question. I can tell you as a daughter, you know, I lost my dad to prostate cancer many years ago, but one of the memories that I have that I'm most grateful for, my dad was treated at Northwestern University in Chicago, and he was, um, he was, he was asked to be on a prostate cancer trial, and initially he agreed, and when he read the informed consent, he thought, no way do I want to do this because they have to disclose all the potential side effects, and it scared him, mm. and it was nice to be able to say to him, dad, do you know people die every year from Tylenol? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, what? Man. I said, yeah, you, you pop Tylenol pretty many times a week if you're in pain and you don't think anything of it, yet there are people that die from Tylenol. So the point is nothing is without side effects and nothing is without a risk, but it's about, is the benefit bigger than the risk? And that is why it is so important for us to continue to do clinical trials and quite frankly, for our for people of color to be represented in that data, because we wanna be able to answer the question, are there differences in outcomes? Are there tweaks that we need to make? Are there considerations that we need to be mindful of based on a person's demographics? And the only way we can answer those questions is if people participate in the trials. One person listens to this and can make one impact. We will all be in a much better place. Thanks again for coming on to the podcast. It was great to hear your story, what drives your passions to help out marginalized communities, and your passion for kindness, which I really appreciate as well. 
But before we end today, I want to ask you one last question we ask all of our guests. And that question is, what is one piece of advice, life or career, would you give to your past, present, and future self? That's a great question. Um, the one piece of advice that I would have given myself, I think it's it's three parts. One, be fearless. Don't let fear limit you from chasing the dream because it's far better that you chase it and you stumble along the way than you look up years later and you're disappointed because you never tried. I think the second piece of advice I would have given myself younger is do not allow insecurity to impede how you show up. I think we have all sat in the room and we, we wanted to say something or we've had a question and we won't ask because we're afraid. Will somebody think we're, you know, we don't know what we're doing or we've all been in a situation where we've been in a meeting and maybe we haven't shown up quite the way we would have liked to. So we walk out of the meeting and we ruminate, not for a minute, but for hours on, oh my goodness, that was terrible. I wish I had done something different. You can't get mired in that stuff. Chances are what you were obsessed about and worried about, the people in the room didn't even notice because they weren't paying that much attention to you anyway. Mm. And secondly, you cannot allow yourself to feel insecure because then you won't show up as your best self because you're too worried about um, what could go wrong instead of focusing on the promise of what can go right. And then I think the the final thing I would say is it goes, and we're talking a lot about it um, every day, but we talk about it a lot in the context, I would argue, of kindness, but it's check your ego at the door. Mm. It's not about you. It's not about your ego. It's about how do you show up in a way that allows you to make a big difference for your company, for your employees, for your peers, or for the people that you serve. So those are the three things I would have told my younger self. And I guess the fourth is always have on a fabulous pair of shoes because you walk <laughs> taller and you're a bit more confident. <laughs> Why the sound of that one? Wendy, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. And Brian, if I could just close with a quote, I quoted her early, earlier because I love her. Um, hmm. But since this podcast is about, you know, passion, Oprah, Oprah has a quote and it's hanging in my office. It says, forget about the fast lane. If you really want to fly, harness your power to your passion, honor your calling. Everybody has one. Trust your heart and success will come to you. That is why passion is so important in the workplace and why I can have a profound impact on an organization. So thank you for focusing on passion. Oh, thank you, Wendy. Again, Oprah needs to be a part of my day-to-day -day quotes now. She has, she has some fantastic quotes from her today. And thanks everyone for listening to the Bold Innovators podcast. We look forward to speaking with you soon. Take care and have a bold tomorrow.